Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's podcast. Today, we're going to delve back into the ideas of critical thinking and skepticism because it's a critical component of how we look at and digest all of the science we explore on a weekly basis. And today we have a really cool guest. We're speaking with John Guy, and he is the author of the upcoming book, Think Straight, Critical Thinking for Future and Beyond. And when I go through this book and I look at the table of contents and all the things that are within, it is an extremely academic look of a deep dive into science and skepticism and something that we really needed. I almost feel like it's an owner's manual for the brain that if you are someone who's thinking about current issues and the mistakes that we make, this is a book to buy. And I'm really excited about this. And so we're talking to John Guy today. John, how you doing? I'm doing great, Kevin. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, this is a lot of fun. We've been trying to do this for a very long time. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, we've, had, we've been running into several scheduling conflicts over the last couple of months. Yeah, but but all good that we we're able to finally do this because I, you know I've had folks on who deal in science and skepticism in this idea of critical thinking because I want podcast listeners not just to be good with the facts and understand the guests and the new science. I want them to be able to apply it and then think about it and appropriately criticize it. And so you know you're a perfect guest for this particular job. So tell me a little bit about you know you're an author of this book. Um, tell me a little bit about how this came to be something you needed to do. Well, first off, I have to correct you that the subtitle of the book is actually an owner's manual for the mind. I think what you had was an early uh, draft copy and I had changed the subtitle of it since then. And the publisher went with an owner's manual for the mind. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of cool that that's what you thought it was. Well, uh, I have both. I, I mean, I, I, I looked at that old one earlier today and I have the other one too. So it's both of them, you know, the, the one is a little more complete, but, but I love the idea of the owner's manual for the mind because I have owner's manuals for, you know, a 1972 Ford tractor. I've got owner's manuals for every piece of equipment I own and I don't have one for my brain. But this one fits. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's perfect. I appreciate that. So I think what kind of inspired me to write it was original. I, I had watched Stephen Novella's great course called Your Deceptive Mind. Mm -hmm. And he covered a lot of ground in that in that great course. And I thought, well, I know this topic pretty well. I, I should write something about this, maybe like a small curriculum or something, you know, to, for educators to teach other people. And so I started writing it and realized pretty quickly that I hardly knew anything about the topic. I guess that that's kind of par for the course, right? So I just started reading everything I could get my hands on, Skeptical Inquirer, Skeptic Magazine, everything by, you know, Dr. Shermer and Carl Sagan and you know all the all the all the names, big names in skepticism. And and yeah, that's I I just kind of thought that this is something that needs to be taught. Like you were saying, 
understanding the facts is one thing, but understanding how to get to the facts is another. And this book is kind of an instruction manual for how to get to the facts, how to sort out what is real from what isn't. And that's a really important part of this. I'm teaching a class on this in the fall. And I, I hope that your book is out by then so that I can weave this into the curriculum because there's so many good nuggets in this that I want students to be able to understand, you know, exactly how to find good information and how to think about it critically. How did I get on your radar, though, on this? Because you had asked me to review the manuscript originally. And, you know, how did how did that happen? So when I when I started doing actual research for this project, I I. I think to I think to write this book, I probably read somewhere in the in the range of like 250 to 300 books and who knows how many papers and articles. But one of those books I picked up was Pseudoscience, a conspiracy, the conspiracy against science. And you had a chapter in that book. I think it was called Food O Science. Yeah, Food O Science. Yeah, yeah Food O Science. <laughs> And uh, I read that. I read that chapter and was blown away by. I mean, the whole thing. You know, the writing style, the you know your background knowledge, uh, the way you presented the information. And I thought, this is a guy who needs to look at my work and tell me if I know what I'm talking about. That's pretty funny because when I turned in the first draft of that chapter to the to the editor. I apologized. And I said, this thing is the most dry, horrible thing I've ever written. Would you mind if I punched it up a little bit and made it funny? And and I read it now because I can't remember exactly what I wrote. And I break out laughing at some of the stuff that's in there because there's some real good nuggets in there. Yeah, it was but, great. But, but it's, it's, I'm glad that that was inspirational for you because this book is, I think, 320 some pages. I mean, this thing is a monster. And it kind of covers everything. But when we start talking about the idea of science and skepticism, let's kind of go back a little bit to, to the roots of this. It's changed through time. I don't know. How, how old are you now? Uh, 37. Oh, you're 37. You're, you're young with this thing. I'm 55. So I was born in the 1960s and I went through the 1970s. And pseudoscience was all about Bigfoot. It was about the Bermuda Triangle. It was about Area 51. It was about Loch Ness Monsters. And we had to sit and critically evaluate these claims. And I was always the wet blanket in my neighborhood who, you know, told the other kids they were nuts. But now we have really serious political and social issues, whether um, a pandemic is a hoax, whether vaccines will kill you, whether or not a, an election was stolen. These are things that in modern day skepticism and in modern day critical evaluation of evidence really have, have tremendous impacts. So why is it, so what caused that shift in, and why is critical thinking and skepticism more important today than ever? Well, I don't know exactly what caused the shift. I think that there, there's a lot of ideas out there about what has caused that, right? Uh, you, you mentioned you know, the, the UFOs and the Bigfoot and all that. And it, I mean, if you go back even further, we, we get to, you know, succubi and werewolves. And, and I think there's a tendency of humans to have this sort of magical thinking tendency, right? It's called magical ideation. And it's basically our tendency to uh, think that things have, you know, some sort of magical presence or, um, you know, there's some energy there in the universe that controls everything. And that also leads into, you know, another form of thinking called conspiracy ideation. 
And these things are deeply rooted within our evolutionary psychology. We have, you know, reasons to think that there are patterns there because most of the time when we are able to identify a pattern, we benefit from that, right? And then these days, people have tons of access to information, but they also have tons of access to misinformation. And the way that, you know, big corporations like Google and Facebook and Twitter, the, the way that they feed us this information insulates us into information bubbles. And we, we can look at some, you know, terribly misinformed information and <laughs> look at it as, it as if it's evidence to support some crazy idea like, you know, vaccines are poisonous or the election is stolen, as you alluded to. And, and that's a really important point is the fact that so many people are willing to abandon critical evaluation of a claim and accept it if it comes from a trusted source. And so this is the big deal is whether you're talking about elections, you're talking about vaccines. How do we begin to change the minds of people who, and this goes back to your book. I mean, I, I, how do I make them read it? Right. I, I guess, I guess what is the, what is the way for those of us who think critically of these issues to try to begin to influence others to share our enthusiasm for evidence? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. I, in my personal opinion, and there's tons of research that supports this critical thing and, and philosophy for children needs to be taught from the, you know, from grade school on, there are ways to teach young children critical thinking skills in a way that's fun and exciting for them. There's a way to teach middle school and high school kids critical thinking in a, in a way that's enjoyable and has long lasting effects. So I, I, I think starting with the education system would be, I mean, the, the best thing we could do is try to implement it into the early education so that people start thinking critically you know, from a young age. And you mentioned that people um, kind of abandon their, their critical thought if, if they find some information that supports a source that they trust. But I don't think that's exactly it. I think that people aren't taught critical thinking from the beginning. So they don't have the, they don't have the background knowledge or the skill set in order to evaluate information properly. So, so getting that information more deeply ingrained into the school system, I think, is a much more effective approach than trying to throw facts at people, right? Oh, yeah, I agree with you a thousand percent. Those are my biggest science communication failures, personally. But also the fact that even now teaching, I, and I've been teaching in the university system for 20 years, or even longer if you count times as a grad student. And for me, it was always like, let me bury you in the facts of the discipline. But now it's much more... I give you some information and then I test on uh, you go out to the field and here's what you see. What do you think you should do? And my students freaking hate it because, <laughs> <laughs> because they'll say like, can't you just give me a multiple choice exam where I can, you know, right. and, 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 but I'm asking them to put together the data and then make a decision and then write an essay about it. And for me, the, the, and the worst part is, is they'll say, well, what's the right answer? And I'll say, I don't know. <laughs> I, I there is no right answer. I just wanted to see what you would think. Right. And, you know, and, and from the class compilation of answers, I found a few that were really good. So this was why um, 
the, we, we think about critical thinking and, and analysis and synthesis of data. And I agree with you. I mean, all the information we have in the world is at our fingertips in terms of the facts and the evidence. So what it boils down to maybe is how do we get people to understand what is reliable evidence versus BS? Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think the evolution of critical thinking and, and skepticism is, is really leaning towards that. If you, if you go back 20, 30 years into, you know, when, when Carl Sagan was publishing The Demon Haunted World, when you get back into that era, critical thinking was mostly, or uh, scientific skepticism rather, was mostly um, about scientific literacy. So that's kind of evolved because scientific literacy isn't all there is to critical thinking. You have to understand a myriad of topics in order to kind of grasp the subject matter, right? So like these days, people are um, weaving in, you know, the, the latest studies from psychology, the latest studies from neuroscience media literacy, information literacy, you know, the strictures of logic, the foibles of memory, all these things are are part and parcel to critical thinking. I mean, a critical thinker, a good critical thinker should have some background knowledge in, you know, the workings of memory, should have some sort of basic understanding of logic and, and argument, should, should, uh, be familiar with, you know, a couple dozen logical fallacies and cognitive biases and what's going on in this current state of psychology. Why, why do we do the things we do and how do our brains trick us into believing that there's some reality that's not really there? That's perfect. And, and, and a very good framing of how we look at issues from, you know, politics to science is we have silos of people that are gathering around current media, not necessarily trained in media literacy or being in a certain media ecosystem to question the media, but rather to reinforce what they already believe. And so how much does that kind of bias play into our ability to think about issues critically? (laughs) I mean, a hundred percent, maybe. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have a, a long list of cognitive biases that are going to that are going to make us do that, right? There's, you know, the confirmation bias is, you know, I called it in the book the the mother of all biases because it's, I mean, it's it's the single most influential driving force of our cognition because that's exactly what we do. We look for information that confirms what we already believe and what we already think, and we suppress and ignore information that is discordant with what we believe. So. If we have some news source telling us that, you know, the vaccines are dangerous or that Donald Trump is the one true president, I mean, if we trust these sources, we can look to that and say, see, look, you know, this trusted source said it. And the underlying problem there is what is that source doing to convince you? Right. What what is that source doing to make you think that they're trustworthy? Is it because, you know, they have similar religious beliefs as you, similar political ideologies as you? Do they have the same social circles as you? And, you know, all these things can influence how we think about any given uh, piece of information. So if we break that down, if we break that information down and look at that information critically, we can say, okay. Is the argument sound? Is it valid? Are there any kind of logical fallacies involved in this? What are the interests of this person? Could those be 
influencing how they're making the argument to me. What are my influences? How could I be interpreting that based on what I already think and believe? So critical thinking is like slowing that whole process of kind of veridically accepting information and giving it a second look with a set of skills that allows you to evaluate that information. You just used a word that I had to look up that was in your book. What does verid- veridically mean? Oh man, I wish you didn't ask me that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I had a, one of the, one of the guys who helped me write the book was a professor of uh, English and linguistics for like 30 oh, years. Okay. And we went back and forth on this term and veridically means something differently in psychology than it means in philosophy. And my definition doesn't really fall into either category, but it, it's close enough. Ver- veridically typically means just something's truth value, right? It's, it okay. has, it has to do with, with, with truth values or how you, how you think about information. So in my book, I define veridically as kind of the blase acceptance of information. Okay, so, so like veracity. Veracity is, is similar, yeah. Yeah. Veracity yeah. is similar. Veracity is, you know, what what is its truth value? And, and I, I actually used a metaphor in the book to further explain what I mean by veridical just to kind of paint a picture. And so basically what I did in the book is um, I used vending machines as an example. So a vending machine has programming instructions to be able to tell whether or not legal tender is in fact legal or counterfeit. So if you put the, the put a bill into the machine, it accepts it no matter what. It'll pull it into the machine, right? And it's it's veridically accepting that bill. Now, wow. it, it isn't until something is obviously wrong, right, that that bill is rejected. And so when we use this as a metaphor for veridically accepting information, we can look at it like, we veridically accept the information because of all the biases and, 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 and cognitive foibles that we have. We, we accept information veridically, and it isn't until something is obviously wrong with that information that we start to question it. So with the vending machine metaphor, we all know that if you take you know, a, a, a good dollar bill, legal tender, that's rejected, we can smooth it out a bit and feed it back into the machine. And you know sometimes it'll take it, right? And, and to use that analogy, misinformation and disinformation can be smoothed out by, you know, these influence technicians and fed back to us in a way that makes us think that it's real because they have really sophisticated ways of doing that. So the, the kind of one of the biggest points in my book is to try to understand when these influence technicians are smoothing it out, when they're smoothing out that bill. That's really cool. That's a great analogy because it really does. It really is a case of once we have a nugget of information, what are the processes we use to analyze that bill? And what are the ways that we look for the flaws that indicate or flag that it's counterfeit? And this is where we really start to lose our lens because of media and politics. And it's an unfortunate residue of the times that infor- and this is where training and skepticism is so valuable as, as is, you know, graduate education. One of the things we learn to, we learn as PhD students and we're tested for, usually in our thesis defense and our, you know, candidacy defense is how much are you willing to be wrong? Yeah. And I'll tell you what, 
the best feeling in the world is saying, I have no idea. I don't know. Because there's so many people that dig in their heels on information that they will stand by and defend, or or as I've seen today, people who are actively fooled and deceived by others and accept it, even though they know they're being deceived. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And one of the one of the things I said in the book is that certainty is the enemy of discovery. We only learn things when we are wrong or when we don't know. So it's out of, you know, it's out of ignorance or wrongheadedness that we actually learn something. And if you, you know, if you prefer to stay in your 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 little bubble of information and believe what you want to believe, then that's then that's your business. But when that business starts affecting other people, you know, that's when I, you know, myself and other science communicators get involved in because we feel like it's it's kind of a moral responsibility to correct that information because it does impact other people. If you are, you know, if, if you think water fluoridation is terrible, if you think climate change is a hoax, if you think vaccines are dangerous, these things have, you know, public health impacts beyond personal beliefs. And when you take those personal beliefs and you put them out there into society, especially social media, where you might have an influence, that, that has some devastating effects. No, that's perfect. You know, we'll take a break here. We're speaking with John Guy. He's the author of Think Straight, and it's an owner's mind or an owner's manual for the brain. Or what? what what's yep. the new tagline? I, I didn't <laughs> get it right. You'll get it one of these times. An owner's manual for the mind. An owner's manual for the mind, which I absolutely adore because it is. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we're speaking with John Guy. He's the author of Think Straight, an owner's manual for the mind. And it is. I, I was really impressed by the depth and scope of this work. It's well-written, well-researched, has a lot of historical, I guess, references, historical references. You can read everything from you know Socrates to everybody else in here. And very, very well, well done. And, and something that I think is a excellent collection to any skeptical book collection. You know, I, 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 and there you go. I put you up with, with James Randi and Carl Sagan there. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> no, I <laughs> love it. Keep, keep your head, you know, increase your hat band and let's keep going. So the other big thing is, you know, you mentioned this idea of memory. And that's one thing that you have in your book that isn't necessarily a element of most other guides to skepticism. So if we talk about that for a second, what what role does memory play in our perceptions of that's that's a good question. So people typically think that memory works like a recording device. You know, we form a memory and then when we want to recall that memory, we basically go get it from the files and hit play. And that's not how it works at, at all. Memory 
is a very, very complicated part of our cognition. And it's, it's wrong a lot of the times. You know, it, one of the things that I stress in the book is that memory is a, it's a cognitive process. And if we've learned anything over the years is that most cognitive processes are, are faulty to some degree, right? And, and memory is no exception. So when, when, you, when, when you form a memory, there, there's a lot of different theories about how, to, how memories are formed and how they're stored. But basically, when, when you form a memory, it, it's, it's, how do I articulate it properly? <laughs> um, well, maybe that it's a manifestation of our biases, right? That when we perceive something, we're now putting it through a filter, which has our cognitive biases shaping what's remembered. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there's there's research on memory that shows that eyewitnesses are better at identifying people who are their same race, their same age, their same gender. And, you know, those are huge biases right there. If, if I witness somebody who's Asian robbing a store, I'm going to have a much harder time identifying that person as I would a white male because I'm a white male and it's easier for me to identify them. And, you know, memory is, is it's, it's clogged with all these different, I, you could call them biases. I think we can just call them flaws, but they, they, like you said, when we form a memory, we're not just forming the memory of something that happened. We're forming the memory of what happened in addition to our internal narrative of reality. So Everything that we think and believe about something is getting stored with our memories because memories are associative. They are associated with everything else in our brain. So when we form a memory, we're not just stamping the memory of the event. We're stamping the memory of the event and everything that happened before that. And that all plays a part into how we remembered it in the first place, how we recall it later on, how it changes over time. Yeah, but it's all part of this idea of self-deception. How we make mistakes by by believing our own interpretations at times and not considering them critically. And you know, there's so many examples these days of this, and it drives me crazy because I I think that I've got a pretty clear lens as someone who's trained as a scientist who comes into a conversation or discussing discussion saying, I probably am wrong. You know, let me see. Your, I, I do. I mean, I really I love do. it well, because I, I really understand that I know a lot about a little, little tiny sliver of the universe and I'm free to admit that yeah. everything else is, is, you know, everyone else is the expert and I love experts. I defer to experts. I freely admit and have the humility to say, I don't know very much about anything. So when I am encountered with a situation I really have a good monitor for self self deception. Yet I see so many other people who are readily fooled just because of something shiny that happens to match what they believe. Yeah. And so how much of an issue is that issue of self deception and how do we guard against it? Yeah, I think I think that's that low hanging fruit, you know, when we <laughs> when we see something that, you know, is is um in line with what we already believe, we want that to be true because we tend to have a kind of ownership of our beliefs. Like they're, they're ours, you know, I have my opinion. I have my beliefs. We're, we're really possessive about them. And if something's challenging that we, we kind of feel like 
they're challenging us. And I think the whole idea of going into something as if you don't know anything is 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 an extremely respectable approach. And I really um, admire that you take that approach. I, I've taken a similar approach in my arguments that I've had on social media, as most of us have been in, right? Where I, I tend to only get into discussions about things that I do know what I'm talking about. And I remember uh, a friend of mine making a comment about, well, you know, this is just what you you think. This is, you know, other people think different things. And I, I responded that I, I think what you're doing is you're confusing what I think with what I know. And I know a lot about a little <laughs> by virtue of having researched this book and having, you know, read hundreds of books on the topic and and tens of thousands of articles. That's how you gain knowledge. And if you a lot of people don't have expertise in anything, but they're 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 free. They, they feel like they're free to weigh in on everything. And that's just not the case. Like you said, we need to de- defer to experts and and stay in our lane because outside of that lane, we really don't know anything. But that's the hard part is how do you identify who an expert really is? And I'm going through this right now with some things that I'm studying where, you know, is this real advice? So I have someone I'm interviewing next week for the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast that is uh, someone I've interviewed before, someone I really appreciate. I love his work, but he's making some claims that I don't know that I'm really able to judge and or that I'm the person to really take apart critically like I would be in a discussion of molecular biology. This is diet and other things like that. So, you know, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable to be the interrogator, you know, because I, because I, I really say I'm not qualified to judge this at that level, but, but what I am saying is here's what doesn't make sense to me. And, you know, with full humility of saying, I'm not an expert in this area. And I think if all of us went into these conversations saying, let's talk about the evidence and come to a common plateau of truth, or at least head in that direction, that's how we'd be much better off than these kind of, you know, knock down, drag out arguments about, you know, why you're wrong and why I'm right. <laughs> yeah, I agree completely. One of the things that was kind of really moving for me on my way to kind of my journey to skepticism and critical thinking was, was a, it was a story in one of Richard Dawkins books where I, I don't remember the details verbatim, but somebody had come in to one of his college classrooms and gave this big, long lecture about uh, some aspect of biology. And at the end of the lecture, this lecture conflicted with what their professor had been teaching them. <laughs> and at the end of the lecture, his teacher walked up to the gentleman and shook his hand and he said, thank you, I've been wrong all these years. And that level of intellectual humility was really moving for me because I, like nobody can do that. It's so hard for us to do that because of our possessiveness with our beliefs. But back to your question, you know, what, how do we know who's an expert? I actually, I, I covered that quite a bit in the book. What, you know, what is an expert? How do they get their status? And I think it, it's, it's not one thing, right? For one, you have to have current expertise. If you're an expert in molecular biology from 1960, your expertise is not current. So the, the, what you know then is, is going to be vastly different than what we know about molecular biology now. You, you should also have you know a specialized field of study because 
we're not all polymaths. There's very few polymaths. And when you have a, a specific area or a specialized area of, of expertise that you spent years understanding, reading about, writing about, reach, researching about, then that gives you kind of the imprimatur of all that information that came before you, right? I think you should also have experience being right. You should, <laughs> right? You should have kind of a track record of not being wrong about things in your field. So if, uh, you know, if you look at that the other, the other way, if somebody is an expert in, you know, geology and continually publishes research that's just wrong, why, why should we believe that person? We shouldn't because their evidence and their research it's not valid. It doesn't. It doesn't comport with current current theories in geology. No, it's a really good point because people who are always on the fringe tend to go away or not be taken seriously unless they have legitimate evidence. And as scientists, we love game changers. And over the years, people have argued with me about the safety of genetically engineered crops and all this stuff. They'll say, well, you just go along with the company line because you just support genetic engineering no matter what. I say, you know what? If there's one lab on this planet that breaks the story that says it's dangerous, I hope it's mine. (laughs) Because because I'll tell you what, it's easy to show another paper that, you know, gets published in a low impact journal and a paper that never gets cited that says, yeah, this is safe stuff. But you give me the opportunity to show that there's some facet of danger in basically 70% of the products in the grocery store that is unique because we've added a gene to the crop, you know what? I would have grants for the rest of my life and probably get a Nobel prize. Yeah. I, I, yeah. That's one of the things I mentioned is the book in the book is that scientists get their status by, by making novel discoveries. If, if you, if you made this novel discovery, I mean, you would be putting decades of research into genetically engineered crops into serious question, or at least one particular field of that. And if you can show that, you know, 400 scientists in front of you were all wrong and demonstrate that empirically, of course, you're going to have tenure. Of course, you're going to have grant money. Of course, everybody's going to want you to be doing research for them because you had the smarts and the wherewithal to figure it out where other people didn't. And that's exactly it. But there's a sort of inertia though, that when you're trying to change what four people had demonstrated before versus 40 versus 400 versus 4,000, we get to a point where we're looking at when there is consensus of 40,000 or 400,000 scientists, it really is hard to shift that because you would have to have such extraordinary evidence to overwhelm everything else that it really does shift a hypothesis into theory. I mean, it shows, it shows that we've made that transition. And, and this is where I'm blown away by a topic, you know, it's a topic you cover in the book. I'm blown away by the confidence or at least the expression of confidence of the people who wish to fight science. And they'll, I mean, and I went through it today over and over again with GMO free Florida who basically all they say is you're spreading in for misinformation. You know, these folks are out there just to cloud and obfuscate the scientific landscape. They had nothing to a conversation, but where does it come from? Is What's their motivation for lying to the public about, you know, vaccines or genetic engineering or, you know, fake elections? 
Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's going to be tons of motivations behind that, especially depending on who we're, who's doing the talking. If it's, whether it's Fox News or CNN or former President Trump or, you know, current President Biden or, or your friend on the street. I mean, it, it's the, the motivation behind it is going to, you know, vary drastically, especially in the anti-vaccine movement. There's, there's big money in that, especially if you're a big name in in the anti-vaccine movement. RFK Jr., I think he went from like 100,000 followers pre-pandemic to like 1.3 million, you know, in, in, in before he got his before he got his account shut down. And these people are are they make a profit off of selling this information. They don't have their names in respected, high impact, peer reviewed journals. That's not where they're publishing their information. That's not how they're getting, you know, respect from their peers. And they're, they're not doing any of that. They're they're making their money from social media, advertisement revenue, selling books, making appearances. There's big money in that. Look at, you know, how many people knew who Johnny Anitas was three years ago compared to now? You know, how many people knew who Mike Edon was or, or Dr. Robert Malone? People didn't know these names. They didn't know who they were. Now everybody knows their names, who's involved in the conversation, because these are the big names that come out on Joe Rogan or, or Fox News or, or, you know, wherever. And People tend to think that these are the people who have, you know, the the wherewithal to come out and tell everybody what the real truth is. But they're not doing that by scientific methodology. They're doing, you know, science by press, basically. <laughs> and, and how much of this is dependent upon this issue of memory, not from, you know, the biases that come into shaping a memory, but just us forgetting it seems like if something isn't in the headlines and in our face that we seem to forgive and forget egregious false information. I think a best example in my mind is the lumpy rats of Seralini in 2012. This paper, the day it came out, was dead on arrival, that people criticized it appropriately, showed its flaws, and, and it, it changed everything. There were governments that canceled their programs in genetic engineering based upon this paper, despite its flaws. And here we are 10 years later where nobody really remembers what that paper was about. People still put the rats on on posters and parade around with it, showing that it is evidence of, of danger. Yet it, it, it's like nobody ever holds the liars accountable. And how do, you know, what's the deal with that? And is there ever a chance that we, is it that we'll never hold them accountable or that we need to educate people to the point where they never have any traction in the first place? Yeah. I mean, education is one of the keys to doing that. And I, I really liked the discussion you had on science facts and fallacies. Uh, it might've been a few months ago where they were talking about whether or not to cancel Joe Rogan for, uh, you know, bringing guests on that spread information. And I think you had the the most sensible response to that out of out of anybody who I heard talking about it. And we, I, I think you were absolutely right that it, the the answer isn't to cancel them because that that just amplifies them. Those people got on Joe Rogan because they were canceled, and Joe Rogan took notice of that and said, "Okay, well, let's get you over here." You, you know, I got ten million listeners, and and you had you know a hundred thousand followers over here. Let's amplify your voice. So it never has the intended effect. Um, 
and I think uh, to, back to your question is like, how does, how does memory play into this? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways that memory plays into this. There's something called the continued influence effect, right? Where we, we hear some information and we later learn that either bits of that information or all of it was false, but yet we continue being influenced by it as if it were true. So, I mean, there's, there's tons of reasons to take things like memory seriously, to understand the processes of how um, memories are formed, how they influence our decision making, and and you know how they how they impact our beliefs, how our beliefs impact our decisions, and how our decisions impact our lives. Well, let's go back to your book for a minute in terms of its content and and, and who the target audience was, because I kind of see a, a, this kind of having a, a rather broad appeal in that. It works for me as almost a textbook for college because it has a lot of depth and a lot of weight to it and it has a lot of evidence it's all cited. But who is your target audience here? I mean, is this something that you want to put in the hands of climate change deniers and anti-vaxxers or, <laughs> you know, I mean, like who is the person who you really thought would, would buy this and consider it carefully and, and really use it as a, as a way to reevaluate their own behaviors? Well, I have to admit that I completely failed at what I intended to do in the first place. <laughs> so like I said earlier, I, I I started writing it because I wanted some small curriculum that you could give to educators to teach people. And, and basically, people who have no idea what scientific literacy is, people who have no idea what critical thinking is. And as the manuscript developed, I started thinking that there's just too much to this subject. There's just too much to it to boil down into, you know, easy, short lesson plans. And as I was researching it, I was learning more as I was going and I'm thinking, Ooh, I want to incorporate that. Oh, people should know about this, <laughs> you know? And so the, I guess the target audience now is I tried to take as many different concepts in the field of critical thinking, whether that's, you know, how the brain works neurologically, how memory works, logical fallacies, conspiracy theories. I try to take as many different subjects that people cover in critical thinking and put it into one text that's written for a lay audience. And I know it's a, it's a, it's a difficult task to do that. And I don't know if I've accomplished that. <laughs> I haven't got a lot of feedback from it yet, but I think it's enough for the motivated adult to be able to sit down, read through it and work through some of the concepts that are in the book and come out at the end of it. If, if they finish the book going, Hmm, maybe he's onto something. <laughs> then I planted that seed and they have some skills that they learned in the book to, to let that seed grow and become something other than conspiracy beliefs or, you know, being constrained by political ideologies or whatever it may be that's keeping somebody trapped in their little information bubbles. So one of the concepts I really, really enjoyed was the idea of the manufacturversy. Oh yeah. So, and then, but this is a totally true thing. It's manufactured risk. And this is something that I see all the time, whether it's the dirty dozen or vaccines you're having this, this group of people who are creating risk where there absolutely is none. And why is it that risk or sense of risk is so persuasive where scientific information isn't? 
Well, we're by by nature, if you have read Kahneman's work, we know that we're risk averse. We don't like taking risks. We will try to avoid risks. The whole, you know, the whole idea of, of the manufactureversy is it's basically a, a controversy that's completely made up. It, there, there is no controversy, right? There, the earth is not flat, right? <laughs> Period. Hands down and empirically, logically, it, the earth is not flat, but you have a minority of people who think the planet is flat. And then there's a sense of false balance that gets um, given to the, I guess false balance isn't the right uh, term in the case of flat earthers because they don't get a lot of media attention, but um but it's presented as if there's a controversy of whether or not the earth is flat. And nobody, nobody with any kind of empirical research has demonstrated that the earth is flat. And yet there's, there's a significant portion of people on this planet who actually believe that. Now, if we take a less absurd example and, and, and delve into like anthropogenic climate change or the safety and efficacy of vaccines or water fluoridation or genetically engineered crops, the science on these is continually been reinforced through empirical research over and over and over. Genetic, genetically engineered crops are the most studied foods in human history, hands down. And there's never been any sort of link between a food's genome and some adverse effect in a human being. So, there, you know, foodstuffs that are genetically uh, modified are just as safe as foods that aren't. And I don't like, I mean, the conspiracy that they are is crazy because you think about <clears throat> there are companies who sell terrible food that make millions off of it every year. Food that is positively bad for us and, and they make millions off of it. So the idea that there's some conspiracy to suppress information that this food is, is bad for us is bonkers because there's food that we know is bad for us. that still makes millions of dollars. Well, yeah. And then my comeback has always been, you know, these are companies that are worth bajillions of dollars. And if company A had any inkling that company B's product was poison, you would see it on every single commercial. You would see them using it as leverage as, you know, in, in a marketplace to gain more market share. Yeah. Uh, you know, people are always kind of letting the balloon air out of the balloon of the opponent. But this is, this is, you know, you're, you're exactly right. When we start to look at some of these major issues and the manufactured false information around them, it makes it really difficult for us to be able to sort the reality from the, the non-reality and or us collectively, of course. But, you know, this is why this book is so important is because it, it helps people understand the process of skeptical evaluation of claims and the mistakes we make and the biases we have. And I really think that's one of the more, you know, it's a valuable resource as a owner's manual for the mind. I'm, I think it's fantastic. If people wanted to actually, go, so when is this actually going to be available? And if people wanted to pre-order it, when and where do they do that? You can pre-order it on amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, probably um, in, anywhere where books are sold really. Yeah, pre-ordering is one of the best things you can do for authors because first week sales are super important. They 
give information to the publisher about how popular the book's going to be and how they want to market it. And it gets the word out and opens opportunities, especially new authors. That couldn't be more true in the case of new authors like myself. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and I'm happy to say I, I'm really impressed by the work and I'm really uh, excited that it's something that that is going to be available for everybody. I'll use it in my class, too, for, for at least some of the early parts of my course. I'm teaching a class on critical evaluation of medical and scientific claims or some, uh, medical and agricultural scientific claims. And we're going to go back through claims about these things. But my whole first third of the class is about critical thinking and deception and how we how we deceive ourselves. And how do we avoid that? And so I'm really excited I'm going to get a chance to do that. So if people want to follow you on places like Twitter or Facebook, how do they do? You can follow me on Facebook. I'm John Guy on Facebook. I'm also Skeptic John Guy, at Skeptic John Guy on Twitter. I also recently started writing for thinkingispower.com which is a website that's dedicated to promoting critical thinking and understanding, you know, most of the stuff that's in my book, you can find on thinkingispower.com and you can pre-order the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever you want to get your books from. And just for those listening, it's John Guy is J-O-N-G-U-I. So it's not, don't put an H in there because that John Guy is like a real estate guy and <laughs> out in Hawaii or something. That's the first time I've ever had to not explain that. <laughs> no, I just wanted to make sure our, our listeners get it right because the 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 one that's worse is Jonathan, where it's J O H N A T H O N. You know, yeah. so John, John, I can I can do that. You know, J O N G U I. So. So John Guy, yeah, thank you so much for writing this book. I think it's incredibly useful. I think it'll be something that really is, you know, and maybe this is a little bit, um, you know, again, a little bit flattering, but I got a bookshelf full of James Randi and Carl Sagan, and I think this fits right up there with it and encapsulates a lot of what they were really leading us to at a very different time. So thank you so much for doing this and thank you for being a guest today. Well, thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate being here. I had a wonderful time. And I'll tell you to hear you say that you're going to teach my book in your class and use it during your curriculum. And that it's, you know, comparing me to Carl Sagan and James Randi is a monumental compliment. And I couldn't appreciate it more. Well, you did a lot of really hard work here. And I, as somebody who's tried writing books and uh, given up on, you know, page 88, I really appreciate what you've put together here. So, so good stuff, <laughs> but you know, I really do encourage uh, the listeners of the podcast to take a good look. If you're interested in critical thinking, the book again is think straight and is written by John Guy. And so this is Calabra's talking biotech podcast. If you haven't tested Calabra's products, please give them a shot. The idea of having organization within a laboratory around a common format is something that really makes a difference in our overall performance and something that I came to much too late in the game. So something I would encourage you to take a look at. So this is uh, Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.